0: there sometimes comes a time in a person's professional life when they have a big decision to make. They might be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, maybe an architect, and they get asked the big question. They might have been working at their firm for a while and They've been working hard and they get called into the boss's office and they get asked this question. Are you interested in becoming a partner? Not just working for us, but becoming one of us. Not just working as an employee anymore, but actually owning the business, having skin in the game, Buying in, getting the profits but also carrying the losses of the business. My first job was in a large accounting firm and there were two kinds of people that worked in that business. There were the regular employees like me, people who came in each day, who earned a salary and and worked hard for the business. But at the end of the day, for us, It was a job. If the business went broke and didn't have enough money to pay us the next week, that was okay because we'd just go and and find another job. But it was very, very different for the partners. They were the people who had invested often millions and millions of dollars to buy into the business. They'd taken out loans and second mortgages in order to be able to do it. They had skin in the game. When the firm lost a client, for them, it wasn't just a shame. It actually hurt them in the hip pocket. They felt it because they had real ownership in the business. When you think about it, being a partner is very different to being an employee or a volunteer, isn't it? And, you know, it's interesting because it's this word, partnership, that the Apostle Paul uses to describe his relationship with the Philippian church. They were partners in the gospel. And this concept of of partnership, being a partner in the gospel, is actually foundational to following Jesus, to what it means to be a Christian. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet decided to follow Jesus, it's good that you're hearing this because being a partner in the gospel is part of the deal. And for those of us here this morning who have been following Jesus, maybe for many years or maybe even many decades in some cases, it's good for us to be reminded of this fact. And if we've lost sight of it or if we've drifted off track a little bit to realign our thinking. Because unlike in legal or accounting firms, being a partner in the gospel doesn't require 10 or 15 years of faithful service. It doesn't require a million dollar investment. Verse 5 that Phil just read for us tells us that we become partners in the gospel the very first moment that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your background, what your gifting is, what your age is, you're a partner in the gospel from that very first moment. If you know much about the book of Philippians, you'll know that the church started with three very different characters as its first three members. We have a wealthy businesswoman, someone who was a formerly possessed slave and a Roman jailer. You couldn't really start a church with three more different people, could you? But Paul tells them here in verse 5, he reminds them that from that very first moment that they came to Christ, each of them were a partner in the gospel, both with him and with each other. And as partners in the gospel, they've got skin in the game. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack this concept of partnership in the gospel in two main ways. Firstly, let's look at how this concept of gospel partnership shapes how Paul prays. Take a look at verses 3 to 8. I thank my God every time I remember you. all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think it's important for us firstly to see here that Paul remembers his friends in prayer. I thank my God every time I remember you. Whenever the Philippian church came into his mind, he gave thanks to God for them. Pretty challenging, isn't it? How many of us can honestly say that whenever a brother or sister in Christ comes to mind, our heart immediately leaps with joyful thanksgiving to God? Often when we think of others, Our minds immediately turn to their faults or the ways that they've hurt us in the past, don't they? But my friends, Paul is setting an example for us here. His mind is not divided in two between praise and criticism. No, every time he remembers them, he praises God. What a challenge! if you think about it, his attitude is even more remarkable when you remember where he wrote these words. The Apostle Paul didn't write the book of Philippians at a seaside resort, sitting on the beach with a pina colada in hand. No, he wrote these words under house arrest in Rome. He was in prison waiting to come before the fearsome Emperor Nero to find out if he was going to live or die. But despite the challenge and the fear and the anxiety in his own personal situation, he remembers and not only that, he gives thanks, he gives thanks to God for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. What a picture of Paul's mind here. God's grace has so transformed his thinking that he's just overwhelmed with praise and thanks to God. I wonder, do we praise and give thanks to God only when our circumstances are good? Only when things are going as we'd like them to? Or do we adopt the mindset of the Apostle Paul and give thanks to God for each other no matter how difficult our own personal circumstances notice, too, that Paul prays for all of you. He prays with thanksgiving and joy for all of the Philippian believers, even the irritating ones. And, my friends, there were irritating ones in the Philippian church. Later on in the letter, we see that there were at least two ladies in the church that just could not get on and were causing all kinds of trouble. But Paul loves and prays for them all. Now, that's a challenge for us too, isn't it? Do we delight in coming before the Lord in prayer, interceding for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones that we find irritating? Do we rejoice in the work that God is doing in their lives? in the way that he's working through them and transforming them? Or do we just allow our minds to get filled with criticism and negativity? James Montgomery Boyce, who's an American pastor, said this, I believe that 90% of the divisions between true believers would disappear immediately and entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. The other 10% will take time, but 90% of disputes amongst the church would disappear immediately if we would just be more consistent in praying for and loving each other. That's our calling, isn't it? To have such deep, affectionate love for each other that we can join with Paul saying, as he does in verse 8, God can testify How I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And Paul can pray with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. He writes, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But what does Paul mean here by partnership? What is a partnership in the gospel? Well, first of all, Paul and the Philippians were partners sharing in the glorious salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. They were all recipients of God's grace, but they were also partners in proclaiming and sharing the gospel. Throughout this letter, we see the Philippians actively sharing, actively partnering with Paul in lots of different ways. We see them caring for Paul in his sufferings and actually suffering themselves for the sake of Christ. They sent a member of their own church, Epaphroditus, to Rome to care for the Apostle Paul whilst he was in prison. They gave generously financially to care for Paul and this was all on top of their own local ministry in Philippi. They rolled up their sleeves and they got busy. Partnership is not a passive activity. It's something that we're actively involved in. And it's interesting, you know, when you look at this passage, the same word that's translated partnership in verse 5 is translated sharing or share in verse 7. And that encapsulates well what partnership's about. It's actually sharing the load. It's not just sharing with one or two people, but sharing the load with the whole body of Christ. My friends, true partnership in Christ is labouring together for the gospel. True partnership in Christ is labouring together for the gospel. It's labouring together in the tough times when you're in prison but also in the good times when you're able, as Paul did, to proclaim and defend the gospel. True gospel partnership is gritty. It's not always easy and it's often costly in terms of time and resources as we serve our Lord and each other together. Sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? not the kind of deal that many would want to sign up for but notice the apostle paul's confidence he has confidence that their gospel partnership is going to continue because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of christ jesus god began his work in the philippian church and he's going to bring it to its completion Isn't it reassuring to know that God finishes what he starts? I don't know about you, but sometimes I can not be that great at finishing things that I've started. Thankfully, Irene's not nodding her head right now. Particularly renovation projects around the house. It's all fine when you head off to Bunnings on a Saturday morning and buy a sausage and you get the materials. But when you get home and the rubber hits the road and you come across that first problem, that first thing that breaks or that doesn't go together well, it can be difficult to persevere, can't it? I suspect though that I'm not alone in struggling to finish things that I start. I'm sure here today we have 10-year bathroom renovation projects. Maybe you're getting a nudge from your partner right now. Hey, that's you, champion. It might be cleaning out that back room where all the rubbish goes that you started a couple of years ago, that's George apparently, that that you never quite got there or maybe even, and don't put your hand up for this, maybe you haven't even finished that diet that you started on New Year's Day yet. Thankfully though, God isn't like us. I can't put it any better than the way that John MacArthur did. God has no unfinished works. The God who saves is the God who justifies sanctifies and who glorifies. The God who begins is the God who completes. The God who begins is the God who completes. And it's not the focus of this passage, but did you notice the beautiful way that that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come together in verses 5 and 6? The Philippians are working in partnership with Paul, but they're empowered by God's spirit. And Paul's confidence comes from the fact that because it's God who is empowering them, who's strengthening them and transforming them, he knows that they will actually stand the test of time until the day of Christ Jesus. But my friends, our assurance in the gospel shouldn't just fill us with confidence. It should also empower us to serve should also empower us to serve. I was reading that during the construction of the Golden Great Bridge in San Francisco, during the first period of the project, 23 men fell off the bridge and plunged to their deaths. But about halfway through the project, they decided to spend only $100,000 and put a big net under the construction. And during that second half of the project, 10 men fell from the bridge down into that net and were saved. And that would have been worthwhile just in itself, saving 10 lives. But what was most interesting is that the workers were 25% faster, 25% more productive in that second half of the project when they had a net underneath them because they had a safety net. They had that assurance, the insurance policy, if you like, that if they fell... It was going to be okay. And my friends, isn't that a great illustration for us as the church? We have the ultimate insurance policy, the assurance that God himself will bring to completion his work in us. I wonder, maybe because we have such a great insurance policy, maybe we can be freed up just a little bit more to take a few more risks for the gospel in 2017 both individually and as a church. Given God's the one that works in us and he's going to bring it to completion, maybe we can take just a few more risks. Paul's partnership in the Gospel with the Philippians certainly changed the way that he prayed. He could pray with joy and with confidence and with thanksgiving. But that partnership also changed what he prayed. That's in verses 9 to 11. Take a look at verse 9 with me. It's up on the screen. He prays that your love may abound more and more. Paul prays here that their love, both for God and for each other, would continue to grow and grow until it overflows. And it's not a soppy, romantic kind of love that we're talking about It's a practical, day-to-day love that grows through knowledge and depth of insight. My friends, the more that we know God, the more we love him. In 1 Corinthians, in another letter that Paul wrote, he tells us that knowledge by itself, without love, is useless. The Beatles were wrong when they wrote, all you need is love. But knowledge and love together is powerful. Combined, they lead to a discerning, spirit-filled life. Love needs to be guided by knowledge in order to be effective. It's a bit like a surgeon. A surgeon can have as much love and care for their patients as you could ever possibly want. But unless they have that that knowledge, that that medical skill to know how to operate and so on, that love is not going to be effective, is it? But when a surgeon combines their love and care for their patient with their medical knowledge, they can heal. It's important that we see that this knowledge that, that Paul is calling us to Is not head knowledge, facts and information. He's not telling them to to jump on Wikipedia or the ancient equivalent of it and learn more about turtles or nuclear physics. The knowledge he wants for them is the knowledge of God and of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. What he wants them to have is insight into God's word and how to live in light of it so that, as Paul writes, you may be able to discern what is best. What he wants for them is knowledge that can apply biblical truth to the day-to-day situations that they face so that they can determine what's the best course of action in a situation despite what we might think Paul isn't speaking here about choosing between good and bad but between good and best and my friends we too need to pray that God will help us to distinguish between what is good and what is best if we're honest with the Spirit working in us, most of the time we know what is good and what is bad. But what Paul is praying here is that they might be able to discern what is best, what is going to be best for the Gospel, best for their own sanctification, best for their brothers and sisters. And there's an end goal in mind here too, that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you notice those words, pure and blameless? Paul is praying that their love and that their knowledge might abound such that their community, their church community, is pure and blameless. He's not talking about individual perfection here. Unfortunately, We need to wait to heaven for that. But he's praying that their church community might be so permeated by by the love of Christ that in every situation they exhibit the character and the actions and the attitudes of Jesus. And although all of us painfully are under construction this side of heaven, we can look forward, as Paul did, and be motivated by the fact that one day our sanctification will be complete when Christ comes again. I wonder, how do your prayers, how do my prayers match up with the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter 1? Do our prayers have the same gospel focus So often, our prayers are filled with earthly matters, aren't they? With our health, our safety, our security, our finances. Now, don't get me wrong. It's right that we bring those things to the Lord in prayer because he cares for us, as 1 Peter 5 tells us. But are they the dominant topic in our prayer life? Is there a gospel focus in our prayers? When was the last time you prayed for your brothers and sisters here at Liverpool Baptist Church that they would abound more and more in love and knowledge and depth of insight so that they can discern what is best in a world that has lots of competing opinions so that they? can be pure and blameless, filled with righteous fruit awaiting the day of Christ. I wonder, as Tim McBride challenged us in October last year, how do our prayers align with Scripture? My friends, we are partners in the Gospel. We're not just volunteers in church but we are partners in the gospel and that very fact, that very partnership that we share with our Lord and Saviour and with each other must change the way that we view our time together here on Sundays and the way that we spend our weeks a partner has ownership Investment, buy-in, skin in the game. To give this concept some final arms and legs, let me try to give you an example by comparing the way that two people might view the same act of service in church. If you know that ad, we're going to compare the pair, but there's not going to be any meerkats involved or anything like that. An example might be, you might volunteer to serve on the morning tea roster. Now, let's think about this. By definition, a volunteer is someone who steps in and does a task without charging for it. That's a fair definition of a volunteer, isn't it? Someone who does a task and doesn't get paid for it. And so, when you volunteer to be on the morning tea roster, you are committing to... Go to the shops during the week and to to buy the food for Sunday. You get here early and you set up. You serve the food and then at the end you clean up, pack up, and then head home. It's a beautiful, generous, and willing act of service. And we're very, very thankful to God for it. But if you see yourself not just as a volunteer, but as a gospel partner, you have a slightly different approach. Maybe you're a bit more intentional because you have ownership. You've got investment. You've got buy-in in the task. So you'll be asking the question, why are we doing this? How are we advancing the gospel? How are we serving the kingdom by doing this? And so you view morning tea entirely differently. You you see it as an opportunity to foster meaningful connection amongst our church community. You see it as a way of connecting with new people, with encouraging them as they either come to know or as they walk with Jesus. You're on the lookout for people who are sitting down alone or maybe someone who looks a bit sad and you come alongside them and you intentionally encourage and support them and minister to them. Being a gospel partner is quite different, isn't it? It's different to being a volunteer. And my friends, the very fact that we are gospel partners, that we have skin in the game, should extend way beyond Sunday morning. It needs to permeate every aspect of our lives. We need to keep examining ourselves and asking the question how will my words and actions here proclaim, defend and confirm the gospel? How will my words and actions here proclaim, defend and confirm the gospel? My friends, a gospel partner permeates the gospel in every aspect of their lives. It changes the way that they walk into church. Rather than going to to, to the familiar. And deciding to sit next to someone that they know very well and are comfortable with. They're on the lookout for someone who's sitting alone or someone who's new. It changes the way that you behave around the office, it changes the way you speak, where people see the fruit of the Spirit in the grace and the generosity and the love that you show people, even those that you find irritating. And it's all because you're a partner in the gospel. That's who you are. You're a partner. And so you live a life that proclaims and defends and confirms the gospel. My friends, no better, my partners, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you have submitted your life to him, You are a partner in the gospel. You don't need to serve a 10-year apprenticeship before you can encourage, pray for, care for and serve others. You're a partner from that very first moment. No matter how long you've been a believer, this morning... I want to challenge you as to your level of investment. Have you bought in as a partner in the gospel? Maybe you haven't heard this before or you haven't considered it. You haven't considered it. Maybe this is a level of investment, a level of buy-in that you've never considered before. But my friends, This is the life of a disciple. This is taking up your cross daily and following in the footsteps of our sacrificial Saviour. We're going to take just a moment or two now. We don't normally do this in the morning, but just to stop and to reflect. Take a moment to come before God and prayerfully consider your buy-in, your investment to the gospel this coming year? What needs to change? What needs to stay the same as you partner with our glorious Lord and with each other in this very important year of our church? Let's take a moment or two to just prayerfully consider that. How are you going to live out your partnership for the gospel this year.